let me fiddle with the mic first. Yeah. Um. Okay. <laughs> Love it. It's a cool piece of kit, but it's now facing. Yeah. Um, I don't know why it's, it's, it's missing. Oh, hang on. Hang on. It's unscrewed. There we go. That's it. There we You've go. You've got it now. Wonderful. Good morning, everyone. Today, I am reminded of a famous literary outburst where in Mel Brooks's The Producer's Musical, the character Max Bialystok cries out after the opening music number, Who do you have to fuck to get a break in this stinking town? Duncan Ord, the Director General of Local Government, Sport and Creative Industries, General Manager of the Perth Theatre Trust and Chairs of Many Boards, is today's author. His awards and honours include a 2013 Medal of the Order of Australia, and a 1982 Churchill Fellowship. However, previously, Duncan was Deputy Director General for the Department of Aboriginal Affairs from 2010 to 2014. He was also a founder and the Black Swan State Theatre Company's General Manager from 1999 to 2004. He was also the Dean of Performing Arts at WAPA from 1991 to 1999. And before all this, he started out as a lighting designer in 1978 with the production of A Streetcar Named Desire at the Perth Playhouse Theatre. Mr Duncan Ord, OAM, welcome. Thank you. Uh, That's uh, my favourite film, by the way. I love Street the Car producers. No, 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 oh. bugger that. <laughs> <laughs> the producers. Oh, I, tell oh, I tell you what, you know, you learn so much about the arts from that film. I, and it's interesting, with that film, like, I really, really enjoyed the original, the 1960s, yeah. uh, with Gene Wilder and Zero Mustel, but also the musical. Oh, well, I, I'm yeah, really yeah. fortunate in watching the, the, the musical. Well, all good films, you know, can be reinterpreted. If, if the book's strong enough, you can turn them into anything, a play or a film or, or a musical, so... That one is, um, you know, works very extremely well. Great Jewish humour, love it. <laughs> <laughs> I love to see, and it's quite sad now. Like uh, we've recently lost Jerry Lewis, yeah, Don Rickles. Oh goodness, I was a massive, massive fan of Jerry Lewis, and he had this very interesting relationship with Australia because he, uh, funny enough, he was made a member of the Order of Australia for his work with. Um, That's right. Yeah. yeah, yeah, he had a long connection with um, with Australia. So now talking about show business. How and why did you get into show business? Yeah, I mean, it, look, it happened through my family. Um, my mother uh, was an interesting woman of her time. She grew up in Subiaco in what was a relatively poor family. Her, her um, father worked for the railways. Her mother was a stay-at-home mother. They, uh, her father was very fond of books and had a great passion for books. And um, so he instilled in the family this culture of learning. Um, but given the family's means and of the day, the eldest male of the family and the eldest female were chosen to go on and go to university first mm. for, their, for their family. And unusual for Western Australians at the time, my mother, being the youngest, was told, you'll, you'll be staying at home and looking, you know, you'll be doing that because we can only afford two kids to be educated. So... Out of the five children, three got put into the you're going to have a different life and two were chosen for great success, both of whom had great success, which was interesting. But my mother, I think, um, was deeply resentful in a way, not, not unloving of her parents, but resentful that she didn't have those opportunities. 
So she became very much a self-made woman. She, she actually didn't, uh, she left school at 15, but uh, with the assistance of my father, uh, who she married, I think when they were 21, oh, he man. sent her back to school. So she completed her leaving with my father paying for her to go to school. Very unusual, would go back to school at 21 and complete your leaving. And that started a very different journey. She, she founded an amateur theatre in South Perth because of her passion for literature and theatre. And, uh, and I ended up being sort of dragged along, really. My sisters both loved it, acted, and I didn't have a very sort of nervous type of child and, uh, and uh, a very, you know, certainly not, not a, an extrovert. So been introverted, I look for doing something, um, but not been on stage. And so I took up the backstage work and um, you know, started doing lighting and building sets and doing those sort of things. And I've uh, never imagined that that would ever earn me a living, but um, it, all my life's been about you know, coincidence and opportunity. And uh, I started to, uh, well, I had a mentor, a guy called Jamie Lewis, who be, actually became another famous lighting designer in Australia. So he taught me things. Uh, not many people knew about stage lighting in Perth at that time. I was going in and hiring lights from uh, Strand Electric, who were the English lighting company that had a small um, office in Perth. And of course, it was just at the beginning. So we're talking uh, now sort of late 60s, yeah. beginning of the disco boom and everything. Everybody wanted something that had colour and flashing yeah. things. And I turned up one day and he said, you seem to know what you're doing, uh, young man. Would you like a part-time <laughs> job? So I'd just gone to uni to do engineering, uh, follow my father's uh, you know, footsteps in the abattoir industry. Yeah. Uh, and here I had opportunity to do, you know, fit out nightclubs and various things or continue with Abattoir Engineering Destiny. Sadly, Abattoir Engineering <laughs> lost the opportunity for a great creative mind and I ended up <laughs> uh, working for Strand Electric while I was at uni and ended up it turned into a job and then I, I started doing lighting in, in, you know, serious lighting in terms of doing concerts and... Uh, then ultimately getting a job at the state, what was then the state theatre, the National Theatre Company, mm. as a lighting designer. So, yeah, it was, uh, it was an amazing creative moment to see this huge transition where the technology that was available uh, suddenly exploded, the technology of, of um, ability to use lighting as part of a dramatic part of, of, um, of all art forms really took off from the late 60s on. And... Um, I suppose for me, I was just very lucky to be on the cusp of an early change of technology because I've sort of had that in the back of my mind all the time and I think I've been sensitive to the fact that I went from you couldn't have a career to having a career like overnight and then seeing what happened in the tech boom and, and what's happening now yeah. and, and sort of understanding the journey and the fact that someone backed me in at a very young age to do extraordinary things. And I try, I've, I've tried to repay that. Well, it's just fascinating because especially on the cusp, like, yeah, the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, and then, like, sort of the, the computers when... Were you still practising light? When was the last time you lighted a show? Uh, well, I kept going for, for years after I really moved into managing and producing, principally because, I, well, look, I enjoyed it. Yeah. Uh, and I liked being part of the creative process. And when I ultimately came to management... You know, I, I believe that you had to understand the creative process to, under, to actually be able to manage it and to sell it, which ultimately I was responsible for selling tickets to shows. 
So I found that if I was involved in the shows directly and had a stake in it, A, I had much more respect in the industry because I was rolling up my sleeves and doing, doing the hard work yeah. as well. I was part of creating the product that I was there marking, but I also understood the story we were trying to tell. And, um, and I tried to, to I, I suppose, make what we were doing relevant to Western Australians because, um, you know, the, there was a moment when theatre was in peril because, uh, uh, you know, disconnected from our society and um, I could see that it was important to get that connection and relevancy back. So I've been involved in helping to create the work that became fundamental. Why I ended up producing and managing simultaneously and being a lighting designer. <laughs> I've always multitasked. Oh, bloody hell. What is the most important lesson or, or quality that you brought from your art career to now your public service career? Oh, look, I often reflected on that. When, when I finished in the arts, I'd been really heavily engaged for 34 years. And, you know, you do a lot of nights, a lot of weekends and so on. And I reached that sort of middle-age crisis moment where I thought, I'm not spending enough time with my children. Do I want to be the old guy hanging around that people go, I wish you'd just move? And, um, and it actually did happen that I was headhunted for a job in Sydney uh, for potentially being GM of one of the performing arts companies. Yeah. Um, I was very flattered. I'd been head, chair of the Australia Council Theatre Committee, as I was known on the East Coast and so on. And I, I, hopefully I'd had a reasonable you know, set of outcomes of the work I'd done over here. And I went home and excited and said, oh my God, this is a great opportunity. Um, then I thought about the implications for my children, their schooling, my wife and her career. The fact that at that time Sydney was in a housing boom like and Perth was in a crisis like it is now. And I went, well, how can we afford to buy a house? We'd bought a house. And I just looked at it and I thought, I just don't have enough passion to take on all these risks for that outcome. And I went, then I'm actually, if you're not ready to do that, if you're not ready to take on a national company having run a state company, then get out of the business because you just haven't got enough drive left in you. So that was my existential crisis. It wasn't that I wasn't enjoying what I was doing, but I just felt that one day it was going to be, there was going to be an internal voice that said, go before someone wants you to go. And um, so it was a surprise at the time when I pulled the, the plug, but I thought, well, well, do I have transferable skills? Mm. And in the end, I, I got a job in the, in the state government. And then it was just uh, this kind of, cultural war between me and the whole rest of the yeah. public sector for years <laughs> um, where they just didn't get me and I didn't get them and I still think they don't get me and I don't get them but but we've learned some way of accommodating each other and uh, but I, I reflected on why did I infuriate them and also why at times did people go oh this guy's really interesting does different things and I think it did come back to the fundamental creative process and I described it once when I was working on a, on, a, on a major project for the state government. And I said, look, part of why I think I'm effective is that I come from a position where we would start and say, there's going to be a program of plays in you know, next year or the year after. Um, I know that on Tuesday, the 6th of September or something or other, a show is going to open and it's going to open at eight o'clock. <laughs> at that time because I've got a theatre I have to fill and there will be people there and something's going to be there. I don't know what the play is, I don't know who's going to be in it, 
probably don't even know who the writer is. I don't know what it's about. Um, but what I do know is when it's going to be and that that outcome has to be a viable outcome. Then you have to go right back to the creative process of, well, what is the stories we want to tell? Who do we have to commission to get it to happen if it's an original work? What's the developmental process? At what point does that developmental process have to turn into something producible? How do we then get the key creators involved and when do they have to do it? And you have to do an immense amount of mind mapping mm. to get all that, visualise it. You virtually have to visualise the outcome yeah. and work backwards to the very earliest gestation of an idea and then start with that moment. You've actually worked out how that moment has to be birthed in order to get to that outcome. And, you know, you learn that, and it's why I'm surrounded by, in government, by so many people that came out of the creative arts and why they're generally really successful, yeah. is their ability to actually think conceptually and then say, and to get to that outcome, there's a massive amount of collaboration and different people's inputs you're going to need. Because you can't direct the outcome, you can guess what it might be, mm. subject to a whole range of imponderables that get you there. And, you know, you start looking at talent identification, how different types of people can work together or not, where the friction points are going to be, where you're going to have to have points of decision. And, um, and we just, you just did that without, you know, Gantt charts yeah. and lots of boffins around. It was something instinctive. And all arts people kind of know that's just how it is. So you get a, an informal language happen. Um, and I could see that that isn't the way government works, <laughs> by any ways. Um, and, and trying to get government to move more into that mode as opposed to the, you know, we're here today, we don't know what tomorrow looks like and it's all very rigid and so on is, is very hard. We do have to imagine the future and we have to work as if that, you know, we're trying to, we have to imagine our own reality in some ways. Mm. And we, we need to constantly imagine more successful communities and then try to work out how you get to a successful community. We spend most of our time in government saying, oh my God, we've got a problem. How do we fix a problem? And you spend no time in working out actually where you want to be in this successful mm. space. Um, and, you know, 80% of problems disappear if people are moving towards a positive environment. So, you know, I think we waste most of our money in trying to solve yesterday's problems instead of building tomorrow's future. I wanted to ask you this later, but since we are talking about government, as some people may be aware, the WA government had a massive reshuffle of all its departments, uh, with Duncan now presiding over a super department <laughs> of sport, local government and creative industries. Considering this massive change, how do you feel? Slightly stressed? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, look, I did, I did have a bit of a moment of anxiety. I have to say a few nights where I didn't sleep all that well. Uh, and I've been madly trying to sort of reboot my brain to think about what role I play in that. Yeah. Um, because, you know, when you have such a portfolio, then your old methods of working perhaps are, are relevant. Um, so I've, I have been, well, particularly since coming back to the arts by taking on Department of Culture and the Arts, quite hands-on with the sector that I you know and love, if you like. And, and I think most people who have worked closely with me over the last three years would say probably a lot more hands-on than a normal Director General would be at an operational level. And uh, hopefully for some good. 
um, but certainly to mitigate a whole lot of bad, uh, you know, very tight financial situation and so on. So I'm going, well, look, I think I know enough to know how not to do harm, you know. Yeah. So if you have to do something, then let's try to not do harm to the sector. So that's been the sort of, not micromanagement, but certainly very involved management um, model. Suddenly taking on a mega department where so much is happening simultaneously, you just can't operate in that mode. So you have to elevate yourself much more into the strategic yeah. positioning space and then ultimately build the work, the work culture. What I want to do is build a work culture across all those areas that follows a similar philosophical perspective mm that I guess I've always carried in my life, which, which as I said, was largely around trying to be innovative and move towards the future, which is, which is I think where the government wants to go, is we have to reinvent the way we do things, the way we deliver services. Um, we're responding to, you know, in the age spectrum, very different needs for, you know, emerging young families and children, early childhood development being so critical, and then this huge growing group of people who are living longer and longer and have a different range of service needs that we never needed because they all you know, shuffled off yeah. the coil long before we were dealing with protracted ageing as, mm. as an issue. And these are you know, across my spectrum of where we want to keep people more physically able, more engaged, more social, the social inclusion issues, financially more secure... Um, you know, relieving some of the pressure points, helping children to be more successful earlier in their lives. Uh, wow, they're challenges, and and they're not. You know, you can't compartmentalise and say, oh, look, that's just a health challenge, or that's an education challenge. We're really being tasked with us, not just thinking about how you run four or five government agencies, but. How do you actually contribute to that entire narrative of the challenges before us and virtually be prepared to think of yourself as an adjunct mm. Director General of Health or adjunct Director General of Education or the economy or whatever? And that you have to kind of play in that mindset and go, okay, well, I'm, I'm directly responsible for X, but indirectly responsible for everything. Also, I found it very interesting talking to some people a colleague or a person that you've you've worked with, uh, Paul Selwyn Norton from Strut Dance. Yeah. And I interviewed him on the podcast. And I think privately we've spoken about how it was interesting how the name of the Department of Culture and the Arts changed to Creative Industries. I looked at your website and your mission statement and to me I feel like the art side of things, it's become a lot more focused and there has to be an outcome, not just for art's sake, but there has to be either a social um, or an economical benefit. I'm just curious to know, did you have a, a, a say in changing names into from culture, uh, art to creative industries? Uh, no, these are these were decisions <laughs> that the government made. But um, I mean, look, I think we've we've known for a long time uh, that you know the arts uh, and cultural sector itself more broadly is connected to a range of other industries which it partly supports in the realm of creativity like architecture or, or um, you know information technology or these various things and in fact they've always been connected mm. so uh, some ways we're just putting names to things that always existed in sympathy with each other we know that uh, you know the institutional value of, of the arts and the 
intrinsic value of the arts and the instrumental value are the sort of three pillars of what the arts does. Mm -hmm. um, and at various times, um, governments seek to pull levers that perhaps emphasise one over the other. I think there's been a strong, and I'm, I'm one of these people that believes in this, a strong desire to, to talk up the art for art's sake argument, mm -hmm. principally because I fundamentally believe the great strength of what we offer starts with the basis of our society, of what constitutes a civil society, mm. uh, in which you have your, your parliament, your court system, and the arts, the media, all those yeah. things as the three pillars. And they work in balance, and you can tell whether they're still relevant by what happens when any tyrants get in. They <laughs> try to control the arts. Yeah control the courts and get rid of parliament. So that freedom of expression, the freedom to uh, create and, and for just for the sake of it is, is so important. Mm. And we do, in, in my critique of problem-solving governments, just trying to constantly solve problems, is there has been a, um, well, the arts are sitting out there going, well, you're solving all these problems, what about us? And then it's, the arts have kind of gone, well, maybe we can solve a problem and yeah. put that waving frantically, you know, <laughs> waving not drowning. And, um, and I think in some ways that, that's been, oh, okay, so what, do you, what do, you, do you guys reckon you can do? Oh, well, you know, we help with mental health and we help with, you know, all these sort of, oh, yeah, heard all that before. Um, and, and the same with institutions, obviously, yes, we want an opera house and look at that. Wow, we've got one of those or we've got a shiny museum or whatever, yeah. we've got one of those. And people, even if they don't use them, they believe in them because they know that, oh, that represents us and yeah. it's kind of something. And our stories are safe and they're in a box and, you know, it's all that stuff's really good. Um, I think the, cha the challenge, the battleground in our contemporary world is clearly the first. The first is the battleground, I mm -hmm. think. The others... Uh, the instrumental value and and I think the institutional value of the arts, um, they're, they're, they're important elements, no doubt, but I think the battleground of ideas is actually, this is a scary world we're in and yeah. <laughs> we have to fight for what, you know, we've, we've achieved and we shouldn't underestimate that we can lose a lot of that uh, intrinsic value of our sector by just leeching away, you know. Mm -hmm. And um, artists aren't quite as disruptive as they were. Well, they're, they're disruptive in a different yeah. way, but, 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 you know, sometime in, I hope, you know, not too, too long, we will get a stronger voice around, around these things because I think we need to have a strong voice around mm. that, those sort of issues. Duncan has worked in Aboriginal affairs from 2006 to 2014. Duncan, is there a reoccurring lesson or, or an issue that you have discovered during that time? Yeah, I mean, look, there's some really interesting things because I, I had sort of a couple of awakenings, one I didn't re recognise and then one I, later one I did. So as a child, uh, once I was able to travel relatively autonomously, uh, my father took me up to the Kimberleys. Mm. And so, you know, by this stage, we're talking sort of early 60s and he took me out to you know, on his cattle run, going mm. buying cattle and stuff. So I went through, you know, the fairly remote parts of the Kimberley, visiting cattle stations, and, you know, it was a pretty interesting world. You'd drive into um, a place like um, Fossil Downs or Go-Go Station or something or other, 
and you know you drive for half an hour from the front gate and you think gee this is a big <laughs> a big a big place yeah. um and then you know you drive up towards the homestead and on the left is is the creek bed and in the creek bed are bits of tin leaning against trees mm. and there's aboriginal people all camped in the creek beds and your eye go my eyeballs yeah. go out you know and go well i've never seen i like i'm a white boy yeah. growing up in perth haven't seen an aboriginal as far as i've remembered and here's this extraordinary scene and you go to you know go and have lunch with the Raj who are living in the big house mm-hmm. and there's you know aboriginal maids and gardeners and it was and, yeah. it, and I kind of just accepted that it was what it was and everyone was very friendly and you know they would take me horse riding with aboriginal stockmen take me out you know it was kind of like this everyone seemed happy I didn't yeah. really think about what I'd seen or experienced. I didn't even notice that my father's meat works and nearly all the meat packers and stuff were Aboriginal yeah. women. Um, <laughs> they were all employed yeah. in doing these things, you know. And, um, and I didn't notice that. I didn't even think about the consequences of these kind of things. So it wasn't until working for the National Theatre Company in ni- when 1979 came around and yeah. Andrew Ross who, who he and I have worked together over a long period of time and still do. Um, Andrew, whose wife had, was studying at UWA, had met Jack Davis. Oh, yes. And um, he came in one day and said, I think we should do an Aboriginal version of the history. I've been talking to Jack and he's been showing me all this stuff around the early history of West Australia. Nobody knows this stuff. It's amazing. So they commissioned a play which became Cullark. And, you know, it had Ernie Dingo in it, Lynn Narkel yeah. and these people. And that was really... Suddenly I was working on a show and just my mind just exploded and I went, oh my God, you know, this is stuff I didn't know. But of course I did know a lot of it. It was like repressed memory. And then I started thinking and a whole lot of things opened up in front of my eyes. I then remembered that my mother used to bring Aboriginal kids from Tarden because I was only male and they thought I should have. So the local church used to go around to families and say, would you take a boy from the Catholic yeah. things? So I had spent Christmases with these Aboriginal kids. They never told me they were Aboriginal kids. Yeah. They were just a kid that happened to have a dark complexion from a funny place. And then I remember the stories they were telling me, which I must say came back to haunt me later, yeah. about their experiences. I mean, these are like 10 or 11-year-old kids talking to a white boy in Perth about what it's like to be in this boarding college yeah. thingy where they've been taken away so yeah I think it just cascaded in and then I realized somehow for one some reason I had taken on this responsibility um and then the I ended up in eight so that was 79 82 was the dreamers I worked with Andrew on that to get it up for a remount in 83 through the company and then in 84 I ended up taking over the whole two theater companies there Children's Theatre, the main house, the theatre, mm. the workshops, the lot. Um, but because the company went broke and I and uh, chairman of the board turned up and said, hey, you're the next highest employee in the company. Here's the checkbook. Good luck, mate. Walked out the door. <laughs> That's how my theatre management experience started. And um, the minister of the day was a la- new Labor, brand new Labor government. Yeah. So it was about six weeks after a brand new Labor government, Burke government was elected. And the minister, Ron Davies, uh, called me into his office and he said, uh, oh, this is terrible and we don't want people to lose their jobs and we don't know what to do. Can you keep the place running? And on the main stage, we had 
Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf with Robin Mitchin, with Robin Nevin and Warren Mitchell. So I had two sort of megastars on stage in a bankrupt theatre company. And um, so that was it. So, you know, I went, oh, I don't know what I was then, 27 or something or other. Yeah. I went, sure, I can do that for you. And off I went. And that was, that's how I got into theatre managing and producing. By 1985, Andrew and I were talking about ideas and we went, well, let's commission another play. And No Sugar came out of that. And then, yeah. you know, we went on and did a whole stack of work. And it more grew the... A lot of the Australian Aboriginal theatre came from that. And I, I think that, you know, what I found with theatre is that it created a very interesting dynamic in my relationship with Aboriginal people I was working with because they were exposing their most vulnerable moments yeah. and their stories and how they felt. And you were part of that, so you inevitably, as you would in those situations, you become very, very close, virtually like family, so after doing plays, and we did plays, you know, with the Noongars, we did mm. plays in, in the Kimberley with Brand New Day and Out mm. in the Desert, uh, in the Midwest, we did Peter Coppin's story. And, and, and so I suddenly ended up with this network of families who knew me, and the, and the Aboriginal telegraph line yeah. is extraordinary. They've, when I joined government, I'd turn up to some place years after I'd been out of the theatre, and they'd go, oh, we know who you are. And, oh, you know, so-and-so and so-and-so and so-and-so has told me about you. So it just kind of everybody knew. And so I became an intermediary for Aboriginal people to go, well, you now are, you know our mob. And, and the story would go, you know our mob, your family, we expect you to behave better than any other public servant <laughs> because you know our story. So it kind of then meant that I, that, I, that I was constantly in the kind of can I broker things between these parties and try to help tell governments, you know, government's doing this because of this or because of that to you and you want X and try to find the middle ground. So, you know, it hasn't, you know, I can't honestly say that's been blindingly successful because quite often I, I haven't been able to get the traction back in government. Yeah. And, you know, I've certainly been tried to do things when I've ended up in positions where I have more authority to say, well, actually, this is the way I want us to, to act or how I want us to engage with the community and, and other parts I die like everyone else with time, with frustration. Not because people don't want to do well, it's that if people haven't had all these experiences, you come to it with the experiences you've got mm. and quite often you see the problem and you're so shocked by it, the immediate response is then I've got to intervene and fix it and it's, it, it's coming from your values but you're actually not seeing, you're seeing the surface, you're not seeing the underlying causalities. Yeah. And then you're trying to fix a symptom, not a cause. And, you know, we've just been trapped in a world of fixing symptoms and oh, yeah. and not the causality of, of these things. So that, you know, you just ache for more people that have had more of those experiences to kind of go, look, there are ways of dealing with causality. They're intergenerational and they have to work at a flow and a pattern that, mirrors much more the realities of Aboriginal existence, mm -hmm. including the fact that they've retained an extraordinarily powerful culture. Absolutely. That, that 40,000 year old culture is virtually impossible to kill off, even though we did our best. And yeah. it, just, it, it just rebounded and it's stronger than ever. And therefore you have to come to terms with that and say, well, that's, that is what we're dealing with. There's, there's a different system, there's a different legal system, there's a different way of thinking and doing and, you know, and we have to 
find an accommodation between those two worlds to, to, to go. And we're just lucky they're incredibly generous people. Mm. <laughs> Otherwise, Absolutely. you know, we would have bombs going off and all this sort of stuff. Um, and, but they're not. They're actually going, oh, God, this mob that's turned mm. up here are all pretty difficult, but we'll sort them out eventually. <laughs> it's, yeah, I, I feel, I know from, from my perspective, I feel like, obviously, and I think there's a lot of important issues, like especially with our constitution, the, oh, it's just endless. And I feel like, I know it's really like in 1901, I felt like I wish there was a treaty with Indigenous people. I wish, I really wish we sorted that back then. Yeah. Like, and that's why I really like, you know, New Zealand in a way. I always feel like they're always a step ahead of us in terms of, you know, women's voting. And um, although we, we did catch up straight behind, but yeah. they're always the first to do this. Yeah. yeah. It, it, look, it's very complex. We're a very yeah. big, a big uh, continent. And, uh, and of course, we had, you know, very extraordinary diversity in our Aboriginal um, culture. Mm. And because we immediately broke up as colonies, and we, we've formed a fairly clumsy federation. Mm. Um, we haven't had the ability to have the, the single point of leadership that New Zealand's had. Yeah. And the New Zealand Maori population, as I understand it, are fairly uniform to the extent that it's been much easier to get a common view around what these things are. So it is complex in Australia to get to some of these um, agreements because you know, a treaty, you can't have a treaty with yeah, one group, one. you know, uh, uh, under their rules, you don't speak for my country is almost yeah. the second, you know, uh, thing on the yeah. <laughs> chiselled in marble. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and therefore, you it, it means having lots of treaties and, and things. I think there is a way, a way forward on all of those matters. Um, but we just have to be patient. And mm. patience isn't a great attribute of three year governments and things. It's yeah. Kind of, yes, we want to do it, but we want to do it now. Oh, no, we've missed that opportunity then, you know, this constant thing that goes on. So there almost needs to be some sort of bipartisan commission that just actually says this has to be outside yeah. of that remit and it works away. And when there's an agreement, there's an agreement um, and it works in good faith and has, you know, support of all all political parties. But I'm not a politician, so oh. I'm just speculating. <laughs> <laughs> What is a quality that an artist should aim for? Uh, look, I, th I think um, definitely they need um, courage. I think that mm -hmm. um, there's very few artists in our society today who can make a living as an artist. So one of the fundamental questions any artist has to ask themselves is, uh, am I prepared to be the most truthful artist to, m to myself and my abilities and what I want to do and say that overrides all the other Maslow's hierarchies of yeah. needs. Yeah. And, you know, how, how do I sit with that? Because I think if you can come to that accommodation and re recognition, then great work can happen. Some great work will happen, as many in the past, that don't get recognised for people have died, other mm. great work will be recognised early in people's lives and taken up and they'll be successful. A lot of people just make an amazing contribution that's so important because we need to constantly have the art of our era. And it's one of the things I suddenly became aware of in when I was theatre producing was I was doing plays that we were largely buying from 
the West End and Broadway and we put a big poster up saying come and see the latest West End smash hit of X and you know people would buy tickets and they'd come along and they'd see the latest play from Tom Stoppard or Alan Akebourne or something or other and it wasn't until I did my Churchill Fellowship I went to the UK and I saw the same plays but with their audience and yeah. I suddenly saw oh my god these stories are about these people in the audience like Tom Stoppard's writing for this group of people, intellectuals in London, who go to the National Theatre to see the Tom Stoppard play, and they're all they're all interconnected, and they get all the jokes and yeah. you know all the stuff. And we're we're taking it as a transplanted thing to an to an audience that don't have all these reference points, yeah. but are going oh well, it's supposed to be really great because it's come from the West End. So I'll sit here and I'll absorb what I can absorb, and I went. But we've got those stories. We're just yeah. they're just different stories, and who's writing them? And that was kind of like the the real moment of, or well, one of the many moments in my life of the obvious, blindingly obvious, being revealed to me. Mm. But it then put me on the 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 trail of, and if you don't tell the stories in their current time period, then you have the danger of only doing things from the past, and in which case. You know, you become simply picking up a commentary from many years ago and recycling them. Now, you still need to do that. Mm. Shakespeare has proven the universality of telling of telling a story in a thing and being interpreting mm. them. But equally, you know, if you'd said to Shakespeare, "Sorry, mate, we're not putting your plays on because the Greeks have got you know all the space in here, uh, <laughs> and we haven't finished with them." Um, then you know we would have missed something pretty pretty significant. So, and it's amazing how long a period you can go when you haven't had something original. So you know, like where's the great West Australian symphony on? Mm. Where's where's a, a a great West Australian ballet about our stories or an opera or something? You know, they. That's um, why I loved it when when um, the opera company did uh, Ian Grandage's Riders. You know, mm. with Tim Winton's book and Ian Grandage's music. I went, oh, that's amazing. You know, in years to come, people will go back and there will be this unique writer with a unique voice. And it's not, you know, some hokey thing about something happening here. He wrote it about, you know, some guy being depressed in Ireland, which yeah. is pretty well a guaranteed story, isn't it? Being depressed in Ireland. But it's a story of a time by great, of artists yeah. of that era and it's been created into a work that was done in that period. And that's, that's really, all those combined elements are really, really important. We sort of touched on this, but I, I want to ask you this. In regards to the operation and stability of a department, is there ever a worry or a concern when a government changes, Labor to Liberal, Liberal to Labor? Um, yeah, I mean, the, our system is an interesting system because there are the sort of separation of powers. So mm -hmm. you know, the, par the members of parliament are um, responsible to the people through the election and they set policy and direction. Under the separation of powers, we don't have politicians, you know, personally directing, you know, who gets paid for what, and who does what, for whom, for good reasons. So, if you're a, uh, you know, you're the department and you're the director general of the department, you have the usual businesses, processes, policies, all the stuff that ensures transparency and you know, accountable government on our side. Um, and you have the natural momentum that's created from the previous government, all the yeah. things that they'd ask you to do that you're still doing. And then there's a change of government and a change in policy direction. Now, 
policy is one of the fascinating things of government because it's created in so many different ways. Yeah. So you get policy that comes from, you know, community activism and is then picked up by, you know, politicians. You get policy created in political parties um, and they, you know, have their arguments around their party and say, well, this is policy we want on this subject because we believe, you know, that's in our thing. And then you get policy that actually comes up from government agencies who go, well, we think there's a gap in these services and this is a policy or the things we do. So there's this constant fermenting of top down, bottom up, sideways in stuff that melds into a complex world that when governments change, you have to put the radar screen and say, well, hang on, what, what policy framework are we operating is? Are these policies that were, you know, by a previous government intended be for their term of government are these long-standing policies that are pretty well got bipartisan support and we're continuing to do? Um, are there new things that the government's now coming in and, and they've got a political mandate to deliver? And how much of our own policy machinery needs to and has been guided by a f broader philosophical? You pick up the taste of a government. So if you know how a government thinks, you write policy towards that thing because like all, all organisations, you want to be successful. Yeah. If you don't write policy, you know the government's going to go, no, nah, <laughs> don't believe in that. So then you've got that, that taste and you have to quickly try to, in a way, flush that out and yeah. say, well, what is the next, what is this government's kind of flavour and how do you write policy that reflects their their values and so on. So. Yeah, it's, it's a really interesting, complex world and it doesn't happen overnight. You, yeah. It's a transition that tends to happen um, over a you know, 12 or 18 months period, which is why, from the public's perspective, they often see, well, we've voted in a new government, why haven't a lot of things changed yeah. instantly? Because it takes actually a long time for those cogs and wheels to remesh and reconnect yeah. and, uh, and for you to actually get decisions on, do you want to still do this? Or would you prefer to do that? And you know, these they're the things you do. Try to do that, you know, as effectively you can by identifying the key priorities that either the government set or are the priorities of the day. Um, and then, like everything else, as Ted Heath, I think he, when he left government, they said, "What uh, what what were the most difficult challenges you had when you were prime minister?" And he said, "Events, dear boy, events." And. Um, <laughs> And it's so true, you know, you yeah. don't know what you don't know and you don't know what's going to hit you tomorrow that you had no idea about. So events, and of which there are many in mm. our society, are the things that knock you off, you know, and, um, and, and force you to respond in a way you weren't anticipating you'd need to. What comes to you when I mention the Perth Theatre Company? Oh, look, um, some interesting experiences because I, I did a lot of shows with yeah. Perth Theatre Company um, during uh, Alan Beach's time um, I mean one of the things that again it comes back to this lighting designer in me Perth had always had a bit of and animal arts have a sort of healthy rivalries between organizations but being a techie at heart yeah. <laughs> you know I and and when I took over the company I sort of didn't really want to have a culture where where I was running I don't think I was a competitive kind of personality anyway was in competition with people so you know I looked for opportunities to partner and do things and in the early days it was quite often 
um, they'd come and say, hey, could you light something for me? You know, so I'd chuff off and do, you know, light some of Alan's plays. Often the newer Australian works because I was doing a lot of that stuff. And, you know, we were sharing resources really because that, you know, if I did it, I didn't ask them to pay me for it. It was kind of like, I'll do that. And that just helps you act employ another actor or something you know it was kind of done in that spirit Alan came and directed for us and and it was a great time and uh, I'm you know was very sad um, when Perth Theatre Company mm. sort of went down you know I did have a view from my time in at Black Swan uh, you know at the end of my time Black Swan I'd lobbied for a theatre you know because I, I, I could see that we really needed a catalyst and a new venue to you know, re-elevate theatre as an art form, and um, and I was you know lobbying for it. And the decision to build this theatre was made just before I finished up. It was partly yeah. that was my last KPI to get a decision on new theatre. Then I went, oh, well we have to wait for four years. I think it was about six years before the theatre was yeah. open. And I thought, oh, I think I'd need to hand over to somebody who's got the desire to be around, and mm. you know, rather than you know, the, as I said, I'd reached that sort of existential crisis but what I always thought was problematic after they'd made the decision is that it was going to be the home of Black Swan and Perth Theatre Company because yeah. I thought well how how does that kind how's that going to work um, having two theatre companies in the one building yeah. especially when you had Subiaco which mm. was the obvious alternate like Belvoir Street versus so I, I don't quite know how those decisions were taken and when I became Director General I had that conversation with the chair and and artistic director of Perth Theatre Company and said, hey, look, I reckon you guys should move to Sibiaco and mm -hmm. we should cycle the companies through so no one's competing for the same market in the same building, plus you'd have more sense of identity. Now, yeah. at, at the time, they said, oh, we, we're kind of trying to head towards being the sort of grungy inner city company. Yeah. But at the end of the day, the, the costs were overwhelming for their financial base. And you know, literally, they they kind of went below the waves before they could continue to transform the company. And they were looking at the program main house shows to try to get raise money. And mm. you know, you, that was also going to end up being well, you've got two companies trying to do mainstream yeah. repertoire against each other. So anyway, it look it 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 happened that way. Um, I've I've been very open in my belief that that we should try to. Have a sec another second, a second company that mm. can do the, the smaller uh, works, particularly the more tourable works, because we've got we've got regions that aren't getting mm. the smaller scale plays. It's an important art form, and you know Black Swan because they're trying to fill the main thing, are tending to do your bigger scale works, yeah, um, or they're doing studio works, and we've got this gap in the in the repertoire, so. You know, part of the tyranny of Perth theatres, it's tended to be either about personalities, directors of the day, or it's been around, you know, actors and employment of actors and company structures. I've looked at it more from, actually, we have to make it about audiences, mm. um, A, because we're in an outcomes-based era, yeah. but also importantly, you know, we used to have four theatre companies um, and we had a big theatre audience, and, mm. and theatre is really important because it's really immediate. You talk about things that are that are about today in a way that yes, you can do it in in books, and you can do it on stage, you can do it in film. They are unique art forms. 
ballet interpreters, visual arts interpreters, different mm. way, and classical music and rock songs and so on. But theatre is an anchor art form that mm. support, you know, it's part of that literary triangle. And, and it's really important we keep that art form strong and that we have a broad-based audience that gets a broad exposure to the full gamut of theatre, canon of theatre, you know, from... Because you do need to go back to the classics, you do need to, you know, look at what other people are saying around the world and so on, and we're just not putting on enough plays. Mm. Blue Room's fantastic as, oh, a, yes, as an engine last great. Hunt's really innovative, and it's not like... The ecosystem hasn't thrown up responses; yeah. it's throwing it up in a really great way. There's a gap in the audience framework to engage more audiences in more numbers. In the same way as I'd love to see the Madge being used more for drama, mm-hmm. as we showed with bringing 1984 in. You know, um, we got over 10,000 people come and see that, and yeah. that's fantastic for what was a hard piece of theatre. Yeah. So people will go and see, and they want they want. To the, the full experience. Yes. Madge is a great space for the bigger works, and I've been trying to encourage Black Swan to start migrating, um, at maybe to use the Madge for the right type of curricula, or the right kind of work. And of course, dance is fantastic in the in the state. So you know, I'm trying to also see contemporary dance in you know build a, a strong yeah. contemporary dance a space there. Children's theatre is you know, needs to migrate out of tiny venues because mm. lots of kids need to see theatre. So, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so that, that's going to be my... Over my next couple of years, I'm going to be waving the flag for audiences and go, you know, what I want to be able to say is, look, there's another 50,000 or 100,000 people seeing yeah. plays. And, you know, I think there's a way of triggering it. Um, I probably need to... Um, to do more effective begging <laughs> at, at Treasury to quite pull it off, but I'll do my best. Do you miss directly working in the arts, being a lighting designer? Yeah, well, my, my executive director here, Colin Walker, who's um, uh, from Liverpool, so he's very dry. Yeah. Uh, after about six months, he, he finally cracked a smile at me and he said, you just can't get the producer out of you, can you? <laughs> <laughs> so he could see that I, uh, coming into the part when I was running around like a sheepdog going, well, we could put this person with that person, that person, that person, and we could put that project over there with this thing and so on. And, um, yeah, so, you know, I can't, I can't actually. The instinct is, is to DNA. I'm, I'm actually, I was really happy to, uh, to you know, like leave the lighting design at the point I did because, um, you know, it was going through a whole new revolution, which was, you know, when I stopped lighting was just around the time of, of robotics I had this amazing kind of uh, you know how th- things come along in your life and this one project that suddenly defines everything about yourself yeah. and um, that was when I was at the Academy so I did light a fair few things after that yeah. but uh, I was doing this I was sitting in my office one day and one of the dance lecturers came in and said uh, would you like to light something for me and I said oh what is it and he said oh during the holiday break uh, in October I'm going to do a um, I'd like to do a show in the theatre if, if you know, you'd agree to it. Yeah. Um, I want to do the story of three women that changed dance in Australia. Yeah. There was Cheryl Stock and Lucette Aldous, and I'm, I'm trying to remember the third, but I, I can't, just yeah. on the tip of my tongue. And he had written this script about these three women, partly by interviewing them, uh, and then wanted them to take an audience on a journey. So they, they were so, so, sort of the... The interpretation from ballet through to contemporary dance and the influences, Martha Graham and all the influences yeah. that had 
that had been in the dance scene. So they had these three icons of Australian dance on stage, all mature women, all of whom wanted to move. So Lucette did a full, did her entire piece uh, while doing a full class, warm-up class for a ballet thing. And yeah. at the back had the Rudolf Nureyev ballet of Don Quixote playing. Yeah. So um, yeah. uh, it, was, was, it was fantastic. And suddenly I, I realised I was going to light a serious piece of dance and it was the only art form I'd never really yeah. tackled. I'd done dance schools in my younger years to the point where I'd become traumatised, never wanted to see a dancer again. And then I had this sudden moment right at the end where I had these three amazing women mm. and they all had an interesting idea around moving in the space, moving in space. And so it was a huge lighting challenge and I suddenly realised that I could actually introduce robotics and try to marry them up to movement. And it was the first time I'd ever played with Wiggly Wogglies, you know. Oh. And, and it was right on that, that cusp of, and I had to be, told by a 16-year-old student or something how they worked, you know. And I did it, and I used them simply, and I, I went, my, the basic principles I had learnt, the less is more. If no one notices the lighting, it's a good thing. Yeah. And I'd been seeing these things go crazy, and you know, for the students using it. And I used them only for a couple of really select moments, and in perfect sympathy with the movement, I went, the old bastard still got it. I could use the new gear <laughs> and it really worked and no one could have quite known how it had happened but I didn't need to show it off until it was needed and I didn't need to tell anyone how it happened and I went yeah that that was it so um but I also knew now it's for another generation to actually fully explore this whole new world yeah. that was opening up and uh my my great mate and who who, who became my assistant at the Playhouse in Lighting Design, Mark Howard, oh, yes, uh, yeah. um, you know, went on to become internationally yeah. and you know, is an internationally famous lighting designer. So, you know, I always thought that that, that I've lived vicariously through him. That yeah. um, you have to be kind of aware when your talent and somebody's greater talent come into contact with each other, and you can take credit for the little bits you've given him. And then you just admire what he was able to go on and do beyond that. So yeah, it's been great satisfaction, but I haven't I haven't felt the urge to go back because I just go and see some of the mm. shows he does and um, go, well, there you go, ah. it's up there. The DNA is up there. <laughs> Time is running out, so I've got two more questions. Yep. Bugger it. What can the Commonwealth of Australia learn from WA? Um, that they should have agreed to succession in 1933. <laughs> <laughs> the reason why I ask that, because obviously now, um, like obviously one of the big blanketed issues is the GST. Yeah. And the one thing I, what makes me really frustrated is, and I liked how you did say before, we do have like this sort of higgledy-piggledy federation. But I just don't understand like from all the, I'm speaking probably out of terms here, but from all the other premiers and all the other states. I know we are taking money from them and we're giving money to them in terms of GST and how that mm. all ties that up. But I don't understand, not one of them has, like Tasmania or you know South Australia, not one of them agrees to, you know, this is an, well, in a way it is an injustice, you know, 34 cents. Yeah, yeah I mean, look, it's, you know, itself, it never, never 
discount self-interest and you know unfortunately politics of Australia are, are dominated by self-interest um, I actually do think it's ignorance uh, largely that people genuinely on the East Coast and you see quite educated pundits put up the story of oh, Western Australia you know we had to pay for Western Australia in the early days they should suck it up and pay mm. for us now fails to understand that, that, that Western Australia you know, it was quite a successful colony on its own ground with its own relationships to markets. Been part of the federation is we had to buy highly restricted, sub, you know, subsidised mm. goods. We had to pay a fortune for the manufactured goods in Victoria and South Australia for many years. And West Australians bore the cost of that. That's economic cost yeah. of carrying those states, you know, through all the times when, when tariffs were restricted. Mm. So really, from federation until the Hawke-Keating reforms... We paid a fearsome price of the subsidised manufacturing sector in the rest mm. of Australia. They conveniently forget that. Um, but I think fundamentally, the, the issue in WA, and I think it's an instinct that any any right-minded person would come to, is it's about you know what's on the sticker needs to be in the can. And they people when they voted for the GST were told there's a new tax that's going to pay for your mm. your services for your state. That's what, that's what they were told. That was what was on the sticker. And and people bought it. Oh, it's fair enough. We're going to pay a bit more tax. But we're going to have good schools and good hospitals and we might even have the arts and we mm. might even have some good sports facilities and so on. When you get 67 cents in the dollar of those taxes being spent in some other jurisdiction, then people quite rightly go, well, hang on here. Who's accountable for that money? Mm. Is, I'm paying it. You know, every you know, mum who goes and buys children's clothes yeah. are paying their ten percent and so on. So I'm paying this tax that's supposed to be for services vaguely for you know that I thought was going to be mine. Yeah. Now it's been spent somewhere else. Commonwealth government says, well, it's, you can't hold us accountable because it's about the grants commission. None of us vote for the grants commission. We yeah. don't even know who they are, let alone do we act, can't we don't can't sack them. We can't do anything with them. They're they're an unaccountable something under underneath a piece of, of Commonwealth thing that yeah. now they say, well, they're so independent we can't direct them, like the Reserve Bank or something like <laughs> that. And then the states that are spending our 67 cents, we, we have no empowerment in those states. We can't vote. Yeah. We can't actually say, look, Tasmania, we think you're wasting our money. Um, so I think that then means there's no integrity in the tax system. Because yeah. in income tax, you can... Go and sack your local member. You can vote against them. You know, if it's company taxes, it's a, it's the same kind of thing. You know that there's an accountable. If you're paying, you know, the government's raising some state taxes. If you're paying those taxes, you can decide that you don't want Ben White to be treasurer or mm. whatever. We can't do anything about this GST. That's what's frustrating people is yeah. the money disappears. It's unaccountable, and we're getting, and we've got no say in it, and we're disempowered by it. That's what I think the fundamental crisis is. It's a breakdown in the fundamental connection that taxes should be fair and they should be accountable and you should be able to vote according to whether you like it. And, and that's, 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 the, that's the thing that's, that's not fixed. Mm. Saying, oh, well, you've got royalties or something. Well, they're a finite resource. You know, we're mining our iron ore. There's no, when that iron ore's got on a ship yeah. and gone, it's gone. And it's not, there's not more of it, you know, like there's, we, it's a diminishing resource. Yeah. So why they think those revenues should be seen the same as 
as GST is mm. ludicrous because clearly the states had to pay a fortune for all the infrastructure of roads and ports and everything to do this, and it's a finite resource. So, you know, it doesn't strike me as uh, that the grant system is particularly sophisticated. And then they say, well, it's all about equalisation, so every Australian has the equal access to services. Well, obviously no one from the Grants Commission has ever been to Fitzroy Crossing. Yeah. Because I can tell you what, it doesn't look like Launceston. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Well, Duncan, uh, time is up, and I have to be, uh, yes, very worried. Now, before we go, one of, the, one of the catches with the podcast is, and it is a mission that I want to complete, in the mm-hmm. year 2027... I would like to revisit all of my guests. Wow, that'd be fantastic. As a, as a catch-up and to see how they're going. So with this in mind, Duncan, in the year 2027, what would you like to plug <laughs> or, or promote? It, it can be, I don't know, maybe a, a comeback at the State Theatre <laughs> Centre, at His Majesty's <laughs> Theatre, or... Yeah, I mean, look, it's two years out from the bicentennial of WA. 2029 is the bicentennial of WA, so... Oh. 2027, I think we're preparing for the full realisation of everything that we would aspire to as a, as a state, that we've you know, really realised on the enormous creative ability of this state and that we've stopped exporting that. We export, you know, 80% of our talent ha- actually gets burnt off and has to go somewhere else to be realised. So we, we, by 2027, we, we have become the um, creative capital of the Indian Ocean mm. region. Uh, because we're such a multicultural and, and progressive society, we are the go-to city for creative capital. And, you know, India, East Coast Africa, Middle East, uh, all the way up to China, all see us as that city that you come here and your creative come here, people come here to, to study, to learn. To, there's a vibrant, you know, kind of, Silicon Valley type of culture of new new stuff being developed yeah. and so on and and that's that's it that's been realised and then we the the twenty twenty nine is just cutting <laughs> cutting the cake. <laughs> Very wonderful. Well, thank you so much, Duncan, for being on the podcast. Pleasure, absolutely. <laughs>